0: Hello, everyone. Before we start, I just wanted to promote a few upcoming pivotal things through June, July, and August. We have the Cloud Native Roadshow coming to all sorts of cities. This is a free day-long event we do with Google that goes over what exactly Cloud Native is and how our customers are using pivotal and Google technologies and approaches. The cities, and this is a long list, so get ready. The cities are Stuttgart, Dallas, Denver, LA, Seattle, San Francisco, Amsterdam, Seoul, Hong Kong, Sydney, and Singapore. There's a big list of dates that you can look at. You can check out the show notes for a link to it, or if you just want to go and Google for Pivotal Cloud Native Roadshow, you'll find it uh, pretty easily. We also have Spring Days Atlanta coming up July 18th and 19th. It's chock full of sessions for developers who want to learn more about the Spring Framework, Cloud Native-style development, and of course, to be fully buzzword-compliant, microservices if you go to springdays.io you can get more info and that's the last spring days we're having so far that we have scheduled this year so get that one in if you're over in uh grits and Porkland. it'll be good stuff finally why it's way in the future we also have uh spring one platform coming up december 4th and 5th now registration just opened recently for this i think you might have missed the early bird thing for it but that's fine there's also still the CFP uh, open. It closes on September 1st. Now, what goes on at this conference? Well, it's full of what I would call the uh, the suit track and the technology track. In the suit track, you've got case studies and managers and developers as well, but organizations talking about how they've transformed their company and what they're doing with, with Cloud Native and their organizations, how they're getting good results by switching over to doing things in more of a, a pivotal way. But then there's also plenty of events. Uh, for those of you out there who enjoy more uh, nerding out and doing technical things, to so check out. I'm uh, one of the chairs of the uh, DevOps pipeline and uh, monitoring track that we inform- informally call it. We've already got lots of excellent talks queued up from the likes of Home Depot, Express Scripts, Allstate Northern Trust, and of course, plenty of pe- pivotal people. I'll be speaking in that track, if that's anything. So come on there. Again, it's in San Francisco, December 4th and 5th. And if you just go to uh, springplatform.io, you can check it all out. And with that, enjoy the episode this week. Well, you know, I like to start with a little weather reporting every now and then. Richard, it's hot down here. We had, uh, we had July 4th, uh, which, mm. which I have discovered is our international, not international. It's the opposite. It's our national holiday <laughs> of eating too much. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that's the, uh, the taste of freedom. It's hot dogs, pork chops, steaks. But man, down here in Austin, it's like, I think, I think we're finally near the, uh, feels like a hundred or so degrees every day. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Man. And if you, if you have to be on a big slope that goes down to a lake, I mean, it's, it had some nice St. Augustine grass, which I always wonder how that's related to, you know, one of the founding people of Catholicism. But that's a whole other podcast, I guess. But it had that grass and, and like you got to go up and down there with the floats and, uh, and, and coolers. You ever had to like lift a cooler all the way up and down a hill while everyone is just like, why are we not drinking beer yet? And you're like, because I got this gigantic cooler I have to lift.
1: That's right. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's only 80 up here. So it's not nearly mm. as bad as your your Texas weather. Those yeah. coolers, though, pretty awkward to carry, especially when they're they're full of sloshing things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Luckily, luckily, I, I like the kind of things that are heavy initially. And then as you have more fun throughout the day, you, you the liquid disappears. And so it becomes lighter. I think I think that that's paces well with with the, the strenuous effort you want to put on things. But, That's right, you
1: know. especially when your strength is faded at the end of a day of drinking and eating meat.
0: Faded strength. That's right. Well, we have a guest on this episode. Speaking of the opposite of faded strength, I guess. <laughs> 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 you, want to, you want to introduce yourself uh, briefly?
2: Yeah, sure. So my name is Duncan Wynn. I run the platform architecture team for the Pacific West, and I've been in Pivotal since uh, Pivotal kicked off. Uh, I used to run the field engineering team in EMEA and I've also done a stint in PCFS working for Dino.
0: Now, now, one of my favorite questions to ask field people is is what exactly their region means. So what is Pacific West?
2: So I cover everything up to Rich's area in Seattle, right mm-hmm. down to San Diego, and then I cover over to Denver and Phoenix. So any customer in that geography. So so it's like all of the West Coast? Not all of the West. The West is broken into like the Midwest. And,
0: Tola and Oh, uh, I just I just mean West Coast, if it's all if I mean, right. it's all it's uh, all of the
2: West Coast. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's this American thing of West means more than just the West Coast. Yeah, I cover all of the West Coast. Right, right,
0: right. See, this is why I like asking it, because I find the names fascinating in that they're a little little quandary inducing, right? So Pacific West Coast, implies the Pacific nature. But then if you have all of the Pacific side, it's just West Coast, but then, like you said, it's not all of West. So I see how you would derive that. It's Pacific uh, is not so much a location as an adjective for which West.
2: Basically, yeah, you got it.
0: Makes sense. Okay, <laughs> I like that. I like coming up with reverse engineering the schemes people came up with for naming schemes. It, it's uh, huh. well, I feel like I've earned my intellectual uh, giblets for today, if, if you will. <laughs> So uh, speaking of giblets <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: there, not Thanksgiving, right? so. no 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 all
0: all the holidays are running together i think I think the next one is uh we got labor Day is that right i think right i I, I think we are now in the American drought of holidays, like we had a bunch of them, then labor day comes up and then and then Thanksgiving. am I forgetting something?
1: Like a Halloween coming up then and then oh, Thanksgiving. Hell but yeah, like, we're halfway through the year. Don't don't start talking about.
0: Yeah. yeah, you guys
2: are getting ahead of yourself. We still have to slog through the rest of the summer holidays. Yeah, seriously.
0: Like, oh, forward. yeah. Yeah, there is. There is. You know, I when I worked at Red Monk, uh, they were half European or or maybe a third, depending on how, how you count uh, James Governor's dual nationality. And uh, the, basically, there was this policy of like, you should take August off, which seemed like a uh, a good way to live. That that was fun, Cause, and and the reasoning professionally was sound. It was like yeah, nothing really happens in August, at least for an industry analyst perspective. But you know, we'll see. We'll keep that in mind. So uh, Good advice. So back to the giblets. <laughs> So you did you did a fine job. You know, I, I I've got another I've got my software defined talk recording coming up this afternoon, and I was thinking like, man, not not much has been happening, but you did an excellent job of rounding up some news, Richard. So so what what do you have for us, giblet wise this week?
1: Yeah, no, I keep an eye on it. So yeah, the first thing I listed was uh, Google Cloud expanded to Australia. They just added their Sydney region, and Amazon keeps scaling. Microsoft keeps doing their crazy scaling. I think it's this again for me reminder that it is nonstop that everyone is going to this cloud providers are just relentlessly moving around the globe, adding new locations. You start to look at these maps and say, where don't I have coverage? Like, where do I have any incentive to use colocation or some of those other providers? Because that used to be a regional play, like, oh, I'll use colo because they actually have a site here. It doesn't really apply as much anymore. So very interesting stuff. Good for Google. You know, they're playing catch up, but I, I like what they're doing there. That was the first one. I don't know if you see that, Kote, as well. And Duncan, it just it's uh, there's no end to insight. I mean, Amazon announces things a year ahead of time of where they're coming into the next country and region. It just seems like you're really chipping away at any benefit some of those regional providers had.
0: Yeah, it's like you're saying that used to be a a a theoretic point of differentiation for uh, companies (laughs) that wanted to compete against them. But nowadays, it's just like, oh, you just go open a data center. No problem. Which yep. uh, I shouldn't say no problem, but is a uh, uh, standard operating procedure that you open all these regional data centers, mm-hmm. which I suppose right. makes sense. Yeah, the uh, second one I called out was Microsoft,
1: or you know, it was leaked, and then I guess confirmed that Microsoft's doing a big reorg, revamping some of their sales force, and there's probably, I mean, there's going to be some layoffs involved that look like they haven't confirmed the whole thing, but really a lot of this is they're rearranging around artificial intelligence, around cloud, and I don't know. I think it's a reminder too that traditional sales. When you look at some of the traditional software vendors who would sell you know, three years, three-year enterprise agreements and some of these big deals, the world's changed to a subscription model where I'm, you know, I'm buying Azure credits and I'm buying and I'm bursting and I'm shrinking and it's just a different way you sell. It's a different approach. So traditional sales forces, it's just a different game now. And Duncan, I don't know your experience when we think about platform architecture and supporting sales, but I don't think it's the the same anymore of necessarily, let's go play golf and sign big large contracts and we'll check back in a few years and see how you're doing. It seems like there's much more of a constant trusted advisor sales process. It's not just show up every now and then. And I guess Microsoft's just reflecting the reality.
2: So A, I don't play golf, I'm horrendous at golf. I just don't have the patience to whack the ball back and forth over the whole 10 times. But yeah, I definitely see there's far more technical um, Technical focus in the sale, customers want to go right into the specifics very very early on, they want to understand the value proposition, they want to delve in very deep, they're getting more technically savvy, there's obviously a lot of open source, so they can do a lot of groundwork up front, reading around it, and um, yeah, it's just a far more technical and more relational sale.
1: Yeah, I would just see often see in in my own time doing sales and and otherwise as you would just notice that there was, as you say, more more technical skill. You would often walk into a customer who knew more about your product than you did, just because it was so easy to research and use these things ahead of time. There weren't the software gatekeepers anymore. So anyway, good for Microsoft. You're you're probably important to shrink in that area and and focus a little tighter.
0: Yeah, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask. I I read some of those stories and like all. Uh... Like all sort of leak confirmed leak stuff, it's not like it's not like they got the uh, the 50-page planning document that was used by the mm-hmm. Microsoft SVP of sales and just put it up there on SlideShare, right? So you get – not all the details are in there. I, is that an EVP or an SVP thing at Microsoft or a corporate vice president? They got all those types of vice presidents running around. But right. – uh, or at least back when I would go to their conferences, they would uh, – and yeah i i mean it is it is like when when I see something like that, like I always wonder like exactly what the reorganization is and and as as not not what it looks like, but like why you would need to reorganize and I guess if the theory as you two are going over is that you have uh you have a lot more technical sales then then there's there's two points after that one I guess you need people who are more technical, so make sure you have that <laughs> uh mm-hmm. and and then I guess also the other thing is like that they maybe there's a shift in the way that things like office and office 365 are sold right if they're i don't know if this is true or not but you know if they're all more of a SaaS subscription it's not like every individual goes there with a credit card to sign up you still have your uh, large accounts where you go uh, mm-hmm. negotiate some big deal with it but but maybe you have a different types of uh salesperson and the way it's uh, it's organized there and then i guess i mean there's always things like like comp plans and the way that you cover your regions. speaking of pacific west and All of that stuff, but uh, it's 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 interesting to see how people uh, uh, organize their sales force because that's that's always highly indicative of the type of technology they're selling, um, and you know certainly having having looked at the way that 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 we do our sales force and technical field stuff, it uh, we we morph around pretty quickly to match the way that uh, that customers want to consume things, or I should say prospects want to think about what they're doing, and then customers want to uh, on-go consume their stuff, and it seems like. I'm repeating a bit of what y'all were saying, but it seems like um, if you have a, a bunch of stuff that's sold as a SaaS, then more or less there's like not really that much relationship to have there. It's like the SaaS either does what you want or not, and then you got to integrate it with some other stuff, and then you're going to negotiate some prices on either side. But it's not like uh, there's a lot of work there. Like Hopefully, it's more of a no-ops, so to speak, situation. And then this leaves this bulk of stuff that you're going to manage and run on-prem on your own. And then that's more of, like as you all are saying, the more technical, ongoing relationship of things, which I guess would necessitate changing around how you uh, do your sales. If, if you are more application-heavy than uh, sort of like, I don't know, Heathkit toolbox-heavy on what you are selling
1: yeah i mean the cloud disrupts everything right i mean at this point even Salesforce is how you do project planning how you host software and so why why should sales be immune from it so again i think just a recognition of reality which is sometimes good to see mm-hmm. yeah one of the other things i threw out here was a uh, spring one platform coming up in december It's uh, the pivotal giant conference that we do all kinds of stuff it's focused a lot on spring but we also dip into the cloud foundry world and gemfire and all kinds of fun stuff and I listed because we have a couple of great keynoters now. So Eric Brewer from Google, who, you know, Cap Theorem fellow, came up with all that. Great engineer, great mind. So really excited to have him speaking. And then also we got last week uh, Eric Gamma from Microsoft, a technical fellow there, who was one of the founders of Eclipse Project, also part of that Gang of Four Design Patterns book, now works on the Visual Studio Code and other teams at Microsoft. So just really cool to have some practitioners and some smart folks kind of bookending the conference and sessions are starting to come online soon. So just exciting to see a lot of people already signing up. And if you haven't already and you're listening to this podcast, then uh, get on that.
2: I'm really looking forward to Spring One Platform. And Spring One has always been a very technical conference, great content, tons of fun. It was fantastic last year to have um, the Cloud Foundry element to it as well with Spring One Platform. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm super excited. So yeah, it's very good stuff.
0: So I think, you know, while, while I'm like uh, helping chair one track now, per my usual style, that doesn't mean I'm paying that much attention to anything. But uh, <laughs> like, like, what's the schedule for like announcing talks and things like that? Or or is there one? Like what what can people yeah, look forward question. to there? Question.
1: Yeah, we're still in the call, public call for papers. We did a private one for some internal folks and customers first just to start filling out the schedule. But the public one, I think, closes in September. So keep getting your talks in, specifically if you've got some good stuff on security, uh, implementation patterns, things like that. But then, we're going to be trickling out as, as teams like yourselves, Cote, kind of approve talks. We're going to get, be getting those on the website. So all throughout the summer and then kind of a big push in August, September, you'll see a lot of talks, almost the final schedule go online. So constantly coming. You'll have a good sense of kind of the talks we're having, the tracks we're having, things like that. But it's going to be absolutely chock full. There's, there's just a ton of content. We've gotten a ton of submissions, which is great. So yeah, to Duncan's Point, it's a fun conference. It's a great group of people. And uh, I learned a ton last year. I'm I'm going to go as an attendee as much as an organizer this year.
0: And if, and if I remember the pre-recorded ad thing that just played at the beginning of this episode, that the listeners were here. I think there's a there's a discount in there and a little preview at least of the the talks that I know of of, of what they are. So just rewind and then listen to all of our delightful talk about weather uh, afterwards. That's right. And then and then and if
1: you win, I guess enough people sign up a code. Hey, I think you win something a trophy mm, a, a badge. Something you know,
0: like that. I don't think with any of my sign up codes for conferences they've ever been used so they're more it's more i, I look at it as just <laughs> brand advertising right there's no there uh, we go there's no whatever i think someone told me that uh DevOps stays minneapolis people they use that code which i don't i don't know what happened some some strange anomaly well finally i think uh the last thing you had is that uh over, mm-hmm. over there over there in kafka land they finally uh they found the you know the wooden cup or the holy grail or whatever so so <laughs> what, what's what's up with this exactly once uh reliability they have or delivery. Yeah, it's
1: good, good stuff. So I mean, the team, who helped build Kafka, and obviously there's the open source piece and the commercial piece. They support. They made a big splash over supporting exactly once delivery in the the new Kafka engine coming out. And so on one hand, it gets positioned in the story I linked here is like, oh, they achieved it. My gosh, kudos to everyone. This has never been done before because in some cases people say exactly once is impossible. That you can't guarantee in a distributed system that. The writer will only write the message one time, and then that consumer will only read it once because hey, the network could glitch, or I could fail to process it when I started processing it, and then I get in a weird limbo state, or all kinds of things can happen in a distributed system. But they put together a really good thing. We linked to a couple of the papers here, some really well written, explained pieces that there's some asterisks here. Like you've got to be using what they've built to kind of have the right publisher and how it's read and if you fan out beyond what's kind of working in confluent land, you can't guarantee everybody else will only get it exactly once. So there's some caveats and other systems like Azure's event hubs have done some pieces like this for a while. Other systems have solved pieces of this, but exactly once is really tough in distributed systems. What I enjoyed the most was the spirited debates back and forth from folks, because you end up learning a lot of people who have some really cool experience in this space. So read up on some of those links. It's, a, it's well worth your time.
0: Now, now between the two of you, it, I'm, I'm interested in y'all's response to this. It seems like, uh, uh, you know, I remember there was this explosion of like no SQL stuff, which never minding all the semantics of that. There was this explosion of post relational databases for everything, uh, going on. Mm-hmm. And like, I seem to most, I don't know if this is some bias on my part of whatever, but I seem to mostly only hear about Kafka and sometimes Cassandra nowadays. Like, are those like, is that kind of all that's going on around there? Or is there other things and, and like, like, why? What's, what's What's been the story with all that that y'all two encounter? I mean,
1: tons of stuff in NoSQL Lamb besides Cassandra. You've got, obviously, Mongo is still super popular. You've got all the kind of cloud-specific things, whether that's, to some extent, you know, DynamoDB in, in Amazon or Azure equivalents, Google equivalents for kind of unstructured sort of data. But then, you know, for messaging, that's where Kafka's gone crazy and RabbitMQ continues to be arguably the most popular messaging engine in the world. So you're seeing more open source flavor for those things, no doubt about it. Versus, But then you look at the cloud things and Dynamo's proprietary, you know, Spanner's relatively proprietary in Google land, even though it's kind of sql So it's an interesting space. You don't have a lot of commercial software being shipped for around databases that's new. A lot of innovation's happening in open source, but a lot of cool as a service offerings, are fairly proprietary in both the messaging and the the storage space. But Duncan, what do you see there?
2: Yeah, we used to be really prescriptive in the field and say, don't use your messaging engine for a cache and don't use your cache as a message bus. But we are seeing a bleeding there. You look at things like Redis, they now have a messaging component in Redis, where historically it was a fantastic caching technology. We still have our own as well with things like Gemfire and geode and um, the ability to cache and then have the distribution over a wide area network is really fantastic. So it's a very hot space, products morphing, product changing. You've got these religious camps focusing on one or the other.
1: Yeah, wild stuff. So anyway, it's a good thing to read up on. Lots of great stories last week, some good hacker news conversations. And maybe that leads into your last piece because I love reading the, the comments when it comes to hacker news. I also adore reading the comments on any Cote register post
0: yeah yeah it's where I go when I want to uh take myself down a few pegs that's good stuff yeah well, you know i I write a more or less monthly piece except uh since it's a European publication to you do a call back in August because apparently no one reads anything in August over there and then uh December for obvious reasons, because he got uh, Boxing Day. I'm, I don't really know what that is. Uh, and, uh, and, and so the one, the one I did this month was on, uh, I don't know, how to filter and select DevOps consultants, which really, as one of the astute commenters wrote, applies to any type of consultant. But but that's fine. Uh, but yeah, I think I think uh, I, I, I talked with uh, uh, Matt Walburn, who uh, used to work here for a short stint. He's now over at Amazon, but notably for this, he worked at the uh, on the, on one of the DevOps I don't know teams or groups over at Target for a while, and uh, he he gave some advice about finding them. And then also our very own uh, Bridget, who uh, you know she she surveys lots of uh, people doing DevOps stuff at conferences, so she kind of spoke on that topic and. You know, the advice in there is what you would expect, like uh, unless the vendor has a vendor has sort of like aggregated people who actually have firsthand experience. It's good to find people who have firsthand experience, not just pure theoreticians and and everything like that. But, yeah, Mm -hmm. you can go check that out. And as as my uh, my boss, Andrew Schaefer, uh, wrote to me, you know, apparently the uh, the volume is working. For, as as one of the the commenters uh, wrote about, so I think there's there's some good descriptions <laughs> of of my theoretic toolkit for uh, writing these pieces to your comment point, but uh, yeah, good stuff. So we'll, we'll put be a- honest,
1: I. Uh... Yeah, I mean, I sent a link to your post to someone on my team and said, you know, you should read the comments because this is arguably our audience sometimes. I mean, we do have some, (laughs) you know, the register seems to have the grouchy sysadmin audience, Mm. which, you know what, that's still a voice. And those are people who still have legitimate complaints mixed in with the snark. So I actually like reading them because specifically that is the people we fight against sometimes in accounts who look at us as just kind of a unicorn promise to come in and save things. So we should know what those folks are thinking.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I you know I think I think that's that's a good uh that's that's a good turning a frown upside down content wise there that that you just pulled off but I think I think that if you were to mind the comments they uh uh you know the number one thing they're they're sick of over there in register comment land is like what the hell is devops like and why, yeah. why it it sounds like the same thing it always is which is like and i poke fun at people in those columns every now and then i often do some parenthetical little wave to like you've been doing this since the days of abacuses or whatever but they <laughs> uh, and and it is kind of true like it's hard to find a, a a satisfying definition of devops like i was just reading through uh, uh, i was starting to read through speaking of a 50 page document the 58 page uh, pdf of the 2017 devops report and mm. and there's 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 some Pretty good sort of like thrusts at defining DevOps. There's one chart in particular. They do the, there's some name for this, but they do these good, um, uh, they're not causal. They're very careful never to say that, but sort of like predictive charts of like if you follow these things, that causes you to do these things, which causes success. And that's kind mm-hmm. of a good summary of, of DevOps stuff. But, uh, if you're kind of cynical, it's easy to look at all of the stuff around what cloud native and, and DevOps is. If you don't get very technical and say like, so basically this is computers except working very well, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and, and automating a lot of stuff. And it's, it's sort of like finally doing all this stuff that the, uh, the computer should do well, which I think, um, to to that point right like the the the, the I th- I think especially with us and other people who want to help explain why you would do things in this new way and maybe this is a good segue to the book is like we were talking about this with uh with Tony and uh and and uh and John in the last episode I think about like so what exactly is cloud native ops right and and you know we got to a pretty good definition of, or, or list of like here's some exact specific things you do that are different and the technologies that are different that make it a cloud native thing or a devopsy sort of thing so uh, as you say it's a good reminder to look in those comments about how you you always need to be pretty specific with Sisafe people about what exactly is different and why it changes things and then as I would say why that allows your uh, your your meatware behavior to change and be better.
1: Yeah, good stuff. I'm I'm doing an intro to DevOps for the Agile Alliance conference in Orlando uh next month. So I'm, mm. I'm both terrified and excited because oh, I yeah. don't know how I'm, I want to cover that? I that need crowd.
0: to uh I, I need to go check out your uh, it's not paralysis. What's the learning service that you have a uh, a thing in? <laughs> plural,
1: plural site.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I still need to go check out your plural site thing that's an overview of devops if only to uh, if only to steal some of the content for for such that's things. Key. Yeah, that's how we work here.
1: Well good. Yeah, so Duncan, so let's talk about that. Uh, so you have a new book. Congratulations. Writing books is hard.
2: Yeah, I have a new book.
1: Yeah, so tell us about that. Why I mean, why do this? There's lots of out there. There's, I think, a few on Cloud Foundry. So did you see some sort of like, hey, we're not talking about this enough. I should write a book that explains the guts of Cloud Foundry. Can you kind of tell us where the book came from?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, that's interesting. So I'm not actually aware of another deep dive book on Cloud Foundry. But the other part of writing a book is it's hard. It takes time. So I actually started this back in 2014, if you believe. Wow. And I was working on Cloud Foundry PCF version one. So 1.0, 1.1 implementing it for a customer and we came across loads of operational um, infrastructure type issues that no one had described. There's no documentation at that level and at that time, which went into the depth of how you manage your routing tier, your GTMs, your LTMs, and all that stuff, and how you structure for high availability and what your backup and restore process should look like. Over the years, we've now baked this into the product. But back then, we just had to learn on the job. I had a 100-page document in Word with all my notes and I was speaking to Andrew Clay Schaefer and we thought this would actually be a good idea for a book. So we reached out to O'Reilly and generally started to or gradually started to convert all of that material into a book. As it was a three year project, you can imagine the project is the product. So Cloud Foundry has changed a huge amount in that time. Right.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. How would you keep up with that? I mean, every time that you finished you know, that last period on a chapter, did you get new release notes and, and start cursing at the sun?
2: Yeah, so some of it being very specific and detailed, you had to refactor. So the stuff on DEAs, a whole chapter on DEAs just got ripped out and replaced by Diego. Bosch has mm-hmm. changed a huge amount, so refactor the Bosch chapter. But the thing with refactoring, every time you go through that process, you realize there are systematic patterns which you can draw from. So you start to abstract up. Instead of talking about a specific implementation, like conshore, you talk about distributed locks and internal service discovery. So by abstracting up, The general concepts stay the same and it doesn't really matter too much how they're implemented. So what I've tried to do with the book is talk around the key considerations of Cloud Foundry. Obviously, it goes into some depth around the components and the value of each component, what they do, how they interrelate. But it also starts to talk about the patterns, like what specific parts you need to back up and how you restore and how you structure for HA and DR and how you operate the platform, that sort of stuff. And that should hopefully be longer lived.
0: Well, that, that raises, uh, I, I didn't realize I had this question until we were talking about, like, who's who's the audience for it? Is it people operating it or people who want to know what Cloud Foundry is or who develop for it? But who who's your, I probably, as always do, I always do with the Riley books, I probably shouldn't have skipped that section entitled Who This Book Is For uh, when, when I was That's reading through right. it. But... Everyone
2: skips it every time. It's yeah, really yeah. for the cloud operator. So thinking about working on Dina's team in PCFS, And we go and do dojos six weeks on the ground, helping customers get stood up with Cloud Foundry, often bleeding into data operations. It's for that sort of audience, the Cloud Foundry operator who needs to stand up a resilient version of Cloud Foundry. They need to link it into their user management. They need to have a good backup and DR strategy. They need to onboard new users, new projects. Um, They need to augment Cloud Foundry with additional services. They need to set the routing policies and everything else. It's that sort of operator that's really the target audience.
0: No, that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I and and just to confirm a little bit of what you're saying, I mean, definitely, I think, uh, uh, as to use another book series, there certainly has been a missing manual around uh, Cloud Foundry ops out there. So that's it's good that that's filling that in.
2: Yeah, yeah. Richard, first about the space. So this is actually my second book, but really it's the first book. And as part of this book, I wrote a couple of chapters up front, positioning the value of Cloud Foundry. And my editor said, that the technical folks, the operators, aren't going to care about the value and the positioning and the theory around DevOps and cloud-native apps and microservices and all that good stuff, all the stuff, that space that Cloud Foundry plays, and so suggested taking that content out and turning it into something more digestible for the C-suite, the CTO, CIO. And so I had a six-month segue where I took those two chapters and turned that into this mini-book, and that was the book that was released about a year and a half ago now.
0: Yeah. I, I think yeah, I think that's a that's go. a very popular book for uh, our downloads right next to mm-hmm. an, another another odyssey of a book, the cloud native Java book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Your own book, Ote, with the cloud native arc journey you've got going on there. So, yeah, little books are good. Yeah, but we that, need that, to be big books. Right. I mean, that's, you know, this one, Duncan, you weren't probably going to write a mini book on uh, some of these topics. I think you had four chapters just for Bosch when I yeah. just last looked. So, I mean, that's. Pretty unique stuff, right? I mean, there's the Bosch.io site. There's some other conference presentations, but there's not a whole lot of centralized information on using Bosch. Do you feel like we've tried to spend the last year bringing Bosch down to earth for people so they don't feel like they just have to become YAML architects to use Bosch? But, you know, was that part of your intent? that You you spent a, a good portion of the book on Bosch. Obviously, that was intentional.
2: Yeah, so I was trying to have mercy on my audience. There was one chapter on Bosch. It was something like 60 pages long. And it was just too much to digest. And so I broke it into discrete chapters. So it starts with an overview overview on the value of Bosch and what Bosch is, and then it goes into Bosch releases and Bosch deployments and then Bosch constructs. And so it breaks the concepts of Bosch down so that people can dip into the relevant section. But again, this has been a work in progress, right? So back in 2014, 2015, Bosch was very different. IO wasn't a thing. And the documentation around Bosch was very different. So I spent a long time with uh, Dimitri walking through the, documentation walking through what we've learned in the field and trying to reconcile the two and Dimitri and the Bosch team have done a fantastic job with Bosch 2.0 with Bosch IO and the Bosch documentation so Bosch in terms of both how it's presented and also the usability of Bosch have you know dramatically changed over the last year or so
1: Yeah that's great one far, thing uh,
2: yeah
1: oh, yeah please so I was you know, I've I've written a couple of books myself and I realized it there's often things you appreciate more, sometimes less, I guess, when you're done about the technology you're writing about at the end. So when you finish this, after the, especially the, the odyssey you've been on with when you started it, was there something about CF where you went, gosh, we don't talk about this enough, or this is kind of plumbing but really helpful stuff that maybe people don't appreciate the log or they don't appreciate things like that? Was there anything when you finished the book you said, I hope people pay more attention to this component, that this actually helps them more than they realize?
2: Yeah, there's a few. I mean, we were just talking Bosch is really underrated. A couple of pe- people reached out to me on Twitter and said, you know, Bosch isn't actually part of the Cloud Foundry Foundation You know, back in the day, and therefore I shouldn't put it in the book. And I think it's such an intrinsic part of Cloud Foundry. It makes Cloud Foundry on the operational side just second to none. And for me, it's really front and center. So I felt it vital to talk about Bosch. Other things, people just, there's tons of confusion around containers and Docker and build Packs. And so spending some time with Ben Hale on Buildpacks and Jules on Docker and Glenn Normington and all those folks, just exploring the trade-offs between Docker and containers and um, Buildpacks and when you should use an image versus just pushing a raw artifact, that was actually very impactful for me to get that talk track down and then explain it to other people. Other things like routing, what Cloud Foundry does at the routing layer, I think is really cool, looking at all the routing services that have come into play and just understanding more about the routing mechanisms is very impactful. I started to go into a lot of depth on the UAA. So again, the UAA becomes really important as well, especially for people who want to integrate with their existing user stores.
1: Yeah, I mean, you just teased it right there. But do you have, for our listeners, kind of that take on Buildpack versus that more container image-centric way of pushing applications? Do do people should have rules of thumb? Is there all or nothing or scenarios Mm -hmm. where you should favor one or the other?
2: Yeah, there's definitely, times when one works better than another. So the key thing to note is that Cloud Foundry supports both. Like in the general marketplace, a lot of people I still think C Cloud Foundry is not, or, or anti-Docker and not supporting Docker, whereas actually we supported Docker images for some time with Diego. I've worked with a customer recently where just building their complicated application on the fly, it was a PHP app with a Perl module and some something else in there, just trying to compile that on the fly was really difficult. So Dockerizing that application, made it far quicker just to get on to cloud foundry to then refactor but by and large if you can have a smaller footprint you actually deploy if you just take your application artifact push it to cloud foundry and let cloud foundry containerize that for you there's really less surface area to deal with there's less concern for the developer there's less security scanning that needs to go on so it's a more streamlined process overall if you can get away just pushing the application artifact
0: so so speaking of of uh, there's a weird connection to like uh, paying attention to the uh, the uh, the grumpy people in the register comments. But and, and and at the danger of I mean, hopefully this won't turn into too much of the usual like, uh, uh, you know, pivotal hyping stuff, despite this being our podcast. But like, I often think that um, so, so th- there's a lot of discussion in, in the cloud native area. And it feels like a lot of it is sort of like talking about what's under the hood of various container orchestration things out there. And oddly, the the sort of like simplicity that Cloud Foundry tries to bring um, to running your own applications, like in the first part of your book, you know, you spend a lot of time basically saying, like, we try to make it so you never have to open the hood, <laughs> essentially, <laughs> or, or you know, you don't have to change the oil every time you go out to drive, to use that metaphor. Um And there's a weird, like, kind of to Ian's point, like it feels like there's a weird marketing disadvantage where there's just sort of like you don't need to worry about those things, so stop worrying about them. And then everyone in the Register comments is like, "But I like worrying about those things." And yeah, that's that—that
2: is the thing, right? So a lot of uh, you know IT operators and engineers enjoy playing around with the nuts and bolts, and we it really easy to do the right thing so by using a platform the developers can just come along and push they don't have to worry about all this operational overhead so yeah. my experience is often the developers are crying out for something like cloud foundry or if not pivotal cloud foundry but it's the operators who want to push back and say look we actually want to build the stuff ourselves because it gives us job security and it's more fun
0: yeah and and, thing- and 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 it, and it seems like a lot of what's going on in your book is is almost like filling in all that stuff <laughs> like like and and it'd be interesting to hear like 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 go ongo- like uh, how, how you approach this as well but there's almost like uh to use google sre terms there's yeah. uh there's this black box right like the way the way you could think about something like cloud foundry is like as it's this black box that i don't really need to worry about its internals and how it operates i just should use it and it's yeah. almost like a little bit like uh i haven't finished reading your book <laughs> self-admittedly but but there there's to some extent, what what your book's doing and having so many chapters on Bosch is like, well, let's make it kind of like a translucent box. Like, if you're really interested in all the internals and how you can muck about in there, you can go free. You can feel free to go do that, or you can just keep treating it like a black box, which I think is why it feels like it's starting to fill in that middle part of like, I don't know, if you're if you're obsessed with like how all these little wingdings and everything works, like you can get in there and wingding yourself as much as you want. <laughs> Yeah, and I
1: thought that was one of the interesting things, Duncan, and Cote K- about the book, was on one hand, I mean, go back to the SRE book, arguably Cloud Foundry tries to eliminate toil, right? I'm trying to get rid of right. the dumb, undifferentiated work that mm-hmm. SLOG wears me down. And Cloud Foundry takes care of a lot of that. But what you pointed out, Duncan, in the book was things like HA, which, you know what, robots don't set that up for me. I have to think about an HA strategy, and maybe robots do some failover. But I have to think about architecture. I have to think about how I deploy this. And that's good. And that's good sysadmin you know infrastructure ops mindset, and then the the machine just runs in a lot of cases. But there's, I think you did a good job of pointing out where do you need to come in and fiddle. Where is that a good thing? So you you know, where, where do memory operators memory. have some benefit?
2: That's the whole thing with Cloud Foundry. It doesn't eliminate the operator need, and it doesn't actually remove that fun. It just raises the value lock. So you're not tinkering around with things like container orchestration. You let the platform do what it does best. You're not dealing with like endless log aggregation. You're just piping it out into you know centralized um, repository for all your logs. And you can focus on that more high-value thing. So how do you truly get active-active and how you synchronize the data and how you set up your users for that and how you expose all those backend services and how you migrate some of those legacy apps off really expensive, unsupported middleware onto a unified platform, which is fully open-source and fully supported. And so it just raises the bar. It means the operators still do tons of cool stuff. They just focus on something that's high-value.
1: Yeah, a lot more fun. I mean, and you'll have the same thing. I know some people can say, well, you know, these sort of run-yourself software platforms are going to give way at some point to just a pure play public cloud. Like, why Why would you build and run your own platform, even if it's Cloud Foundry, when I can just use fill-in-the-blank from a public cloud provider? But I think, again, to your point, many of those things you just listed out, setting up HA strategies, doing data replication, figuring out how you do app migration, that is identical regardless of where you're doing it. And yeah. Cloud Foundry does give you some flexibility of where you're running that and a consistent experience everywhere. So. These are universal problems, but luckily we're trying to all raise our gaze to things that matter a lot more than twi- you know, tweaking registry settings on a Windows box.
2: And Kote, to your point, having some visibility into how things like Diego works and how containers work is important because if things go wrong, you need to be able to debug, you need to understand the flows of communication, you need to know what to look at, how the networks are configured, what components calling out to what component. And by having an appreciation of that, it really helps with the troubleshooting. So my aim about exposing some of those internals around Diego, and there's a big 50-page chapter on how Diego works, is to really help the operator go in very deep, very quickly if they need to then do some troubleshooting.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean that's that's good, and it it, it comes through in in the uh, even even the the scant sections I read is is. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think to phrase what you're saying another way, and, and we weaving in my experience with talking with uh, resistive ops people, <laughs> is they need some way to build up trust in, as we would say, the platform or trust in the new technology. and yeah. And they need to do that even before they get to the point where they're... Learning the new things, or at least translating their old way of think, their their current way of thinking about how they manage IT to a new way. And as an example, I thought the uh, you know you have you kind of have this brief discussion of how what application instances are, AIs are, and how they're a different way of thinking about things than a a server, you know, in a server based thing or whatever, and or a socket or even a VM, and why we would think about things in that way. And and this comes up a lot going back to a uh, sales organization and pricing because we price things based on AIs, which befuddles people a lot initially. But it, it does seem like they're at the ops level, like once you build up trust in the system, because it's not a black box, then you can kind of understand how the components move. And then that gets to, you know, uh, uh, to kind of s- switch a little bit. I mean, something that that, that uh, I'm kind of realizing as we're talking about it is is a lot of above the value line ops-wise is more managing the distributed applications your your uh, your organization's running than really managing the infrastructure it all runs on. And it seems like, I don't know, I mean, if that framing is good, that seems like a framing to, that to push people towards more is like, as you all are both saying, like, you're still doing a lot of operation stuff. You're just not managing infrastructure. You still have to come up with the way that you're going to have high availability and the way you're going to recover from failure and the policies that you need to have, like, you know, resilience and all of that stuff. You're just not really worrying about, like, storage so much. I mean, there is kind of worrying of that, but you're more worrying about all the services that you're pulling together. And kind of from a developer perspective, the operations people are sort of, like, taking some of those responsibilities that developers maybe used to worry about because they were way up in developer land. And uh, instead doing that work probably better than most run-of-the-mill developers could do if if they're actually
2: planning out and managing server services for them. Yeah, and Tony Hansman's got this line, get your business back. And that's absolutely pertinent for the developers and the lines of business. So if they can just focus on their business instead of curating Docker images and understanding how container orchestration works and dealing with all the low-level concerns, they just focus on their business logic. The lines of business, the business owner really can move with high velocity. And then it should be more fun for the developer as well, because they're developing meaningful business code at that point and making a direct, tangible difference to the business rather than just dealing with middleware and container orchestration concerns and the like.
1: Yeah, now you mentioned, you know, as someone could read that book and go through and go, gosh, this all seems big and complicated. Like, there's just a lot of moving pieces. This thing's a beast. And on one hand, you could say, well, sure, it's a, it's a platform. I mean, you don't necessarily learn how Amazon works just by point and clicking on your first try. Like, there's a bunch of subsystems you have to think about. About monitoring, whatever. So sure, Cloud Foundry is a lot of things going on. How do you how do developers then not look at this as I have to learn a whole lot of stuff to use this? I mean, kind of that dev experience. How do you encourage people to to start using the platform and not, you know, as you say, you can treat this like a black box if you want to, or you can pull back the curtains. As a developer, though, how does this not feel intimidating?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I've tried to address that up front. So the book is very explicitly not for developers, and i talk about this in a preface. It's really for the Cloud Foundry operator, the person who stands up Cloud Foundry and is responsible for all those data operations. And that means, as a developer, you're really free to understand the interaction with the platform. So things like CF push, how do I push my application? How are environment variables exposed? How do I get access to my logs? How do I bind to services? And the footprint and the area to understand there is really very small. And so my view is the developer experience when using Cloud Foundry is very, very quick. And we expedite that with a couple of things. We obviously have Pivotal web services where they can sign up and get some familiarity using Cloud Foundry. There's also Bosch Lite, where they can stand up like a local version of Cloud Foundry if they want to, or they have PCF dev, where they can just download a vagrant image of Pivotal Cloud Foundry and get going. So from the dev experience, hopefully we've done a great job making that very, very easy. For the operator, to your point that Cloud Foundry comes across big, scary, complicated, we can't hide the fact that it is a complicated distributed system. But when I look at how we've broken Cloud Foundry into a set of subsystems and um, CF Deployment, which is the new way Cloud Foundry is all packaged up, has done a great job breaking everything into isolated components rather than this big monolithic release. So now you have a separate UAA, you have a separate Diego release, and you know everything's componentized. We've done a great job defining very clear boundaries, very clear flows of interaction between these subsystems. And so for someone like an operator coming in cold, you can start at a high level understanding each discrete subsystem at a high level and how they interact then you have the freedom to dig into logging in isolation or Diego into isolation or UAA or routing. And you can pick and choose the areas of Cloud Foundry, which you want to focus on.
1: Awesome. So one of the other things that you mentioned in there, and we talk a lot about in Cloud Foundry land, but it's a, I, know, I don't think we use the word contracts as much anymore between the layers, because sometimes it has a legalistic sense, but that there's kind of expectations between different layers of the components that we do have an opinion that does get put on how you should build apps and and things like that. So, you know, as you talked about in the book, and as you think about Cloud Foundry in general, are opinions a bad thing? When are they a good thing? You know, how is that in favor of a developer or an operator when they're thinking of building and running systems like this?
2: I think opinions is a really good thing. Cloud Foundry is definitely a structured, opinionated platform, and we have strong opinions on how you should do software delivery. I mean, Pivotal as a whole is transforming the way the world builds software, and you cannot do that without strong opinions. But the beauty of Cloud Foundry is that it's not just opinionated, it's also open. And so it leaves choice at the right areas. So we talked earlier, you have the choice to use Docker or you can push um, your application artifact. You have choice on service brokers. You have choice on which cloud provider you deploy to. You have choice on how you structure HA. So there are a number of critical decisions, which we still have strong opinions of both the platform and um, platform architecture teams have strong opinions on these, but we also leave flexibility where it matters to the customer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think, I think, I, I think uh, as, as a last question, so, uh, uh, so, so what's your favorite part of the book? Is, it, is there some part that you are like, Oh, this part's great. Like, you know, me, well, maybe you don't, but I'm always trying to put stupid <laughs> jokes in and, and allusions to things that I'm pretty sure only I I do. But you you got any like fun Easter eggs or just some favorite part where you're like, man, I really nailed how that creepy clam works. Like what uh, what are you most proud of in there?
2: Some of the stuff, like the really deep guts I had to remove because the book was just getting ridiculous in length. In terms of what's still in the book, in my favorite part, I like the ending, the uh, what's next, the roadmap. I spent some time with Yui. And a number of other people in engineering talking about some of the possibilities of Cloud Foundry. And When you look at the progression of Cloud Foundry from 2014 to now, you can see how far it's come. But you can also see what's on the horizon and some of the things which may be coming down the pipeline. Isolation zones are something that's come recently. But there's a load of other stuff that Cloud Foundry could start to stray into. And that's really exciting for me.
0: All right. Well, thanks for being on. What's uh we, what what's the best way to like for people to get a get a copy of the book? I mean, just like all the usual things or is there something that's better than that? Do you, do you get some like bonus material if you go somewhere else? No.
2: Um there's no bonus material. So, O'Reilly <laughs> are actually some their direct distribution. So, I think if you want a copy of the book, there's some on pivotal store. So, if you're want to right. pivotal something there or amazon.com.
0: Yeah, yeah. I started reading it. Uh, yeah, uh I don't know if we still do this, but I, for some reason, have some Safari subscription through Pivotal. So I was uh, just yeah, reading it through
2: there. Yeah, you can get on Safari. So yeah. you can get it from, yeah.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for being on. That was good stuff. We'll put a uh, a link to the book Cloud Foundry: colon, The Definitive Guide, right? And uh, and you know you can look it up. But it is it is. I think uh, you know you you got the the little Cloud Foundry book that we talked about earlier. I, I we we always give that one out at conferences a lot, and I, that's the one I always recommend to people if they uh, don't really know what else, what all is going on in the the pivotal cloud native area. It's as as you were saying, it's a good overview of like why you would care about all of this stuff in a uh, digestible form. So, uh, also, if people want to follow, you know, not only the book, but if they want to uh, putter around with you on the internet, you got a Twitter account or anything like that. What? Uh,
2: yeah, where, where can people find you. So yeah, just go to Dunkwin and see me on Twitter.
0: All right, is that's that's two ends, right? Did I got that right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, W R N N. There you go. All right. Well, uh, as always, thanks. Thanks for listening to Pivotal Conversations. Uh, we'll be back next week with something. If you want to find the uh, the most recent episodes, the RSS feed to listen to, and uh, I guess the most unrecent episodes, all the old ones, the best place to go is SoundCloud.com/slash Pivotal Conversations with no space or underbar. Uh, we got all sorts of fun stuff there. You know, we we've alluded to a couple episodes, like the one about cloud native ops uh, last week. There's uh, there's some from actual customers like uh, Allstate and others talking about their experience using all of this stuff and just changing how their organization does in general. You can also find how to subscribe to it uh, if you go into iTunes or Overcast or whatever Stitcher is, all these places. That's always the best thing to do is subscribe. And if you have the time, it's always good to uh, go write a little review in iTunes or even better. Just uh, refer to your friends or other people who you think might uh, be interested in it. You can email us at uh, podcast at pivotal.io. And if someone wanted to see you on Twitter, Richard, where would they go?
1: You can always find me at, at @r_siroter on the uh, the Twitters. That's
0: right, and it's so a it's a very good real time feed of all the interesting news that I haven't found yet, and we'll find about <laughs> next week when I when I <laughs> uh, hurriedly re- do some prep and read through the show notes. So I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm in Twitter as Cote just C O T E, and we'll see everyone next time. Bye bye.